The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. study of history can teach us much of life in times past, but the inquisitive mind can use it to understand how we reach the world of today, and what shape the world of tomorrow will take. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and gong, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's seminar covers the 1984 restoration of Fritz Lang's 1927 silent science fiction epic Metropolis, produced by and with music by Giorgio Moroder. My guest is Chris Arnsby, and you join us in his library, deep in the bowels of Crossrail. Hello, Chris. Hello. What can you tell me about uh, post-World War I German cinema? There was a lot of it. Oh, yeah. Um, Nosferatu... Uh, Good. Celebrating its centenary this year. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yep. I think I might be at the limits of my knowledge there, I'm afraid. Uh, the stories of Dr. Mabuza. Oh, of course, yeah. I've heard I've heard of them. I haven't seen them, yeah. And um, some other work of that film's director, uh, Fritz Lang. Hmm. Had you seen Metropolis before? Yes. In fact, I've actually seen the Giorgio Moroder version before. Uh, it must have been shown on BBC Two in about Christmas 86 or 87. And I watched it on a black and white TV set, so I didn't realise they'd tinted the picture. Oh, I see. Yeah, um, I always quite liked it. I think it was always mixed up in my head with the Queen video for Radio Gaga. That was That's one of the many thousands of pieces of pop culture, I think, that have been influenced by Metropolis. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah there's quite a few, aren't there? Yeah. Uh, we've got Sexy C-3PO in this. Mm. We've got... Uh, uh, yeah, futuristic cities with planes flying around like Blade Runner. Yeah. All sorts. Yeah, and, and, and all of the others. Yes, yeah, and the rest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll think of the... I'm Logan's, sure we'll think of Logan's, Logan's run with the young people frolicking about and having a nice time. Yeah, that's at, true. At terrible cost. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Hmm. So Moroda was, um, and is, in fact, a very successful music producer mm. uh made his name in disco in the uh, the late 70s his actually his his real name is giovanni giorgio because he's from um uh northern italy i think i think he's tyrolean so there's a germanic influence in mm. his background but became a huge star in disco um wrote the score for uh, midnight express yeah um whose chase music is <laughs> my, uh is, it's my gym jam. I'm sure there's a better way of phrasing it. <laughs> yeah, I think I know. Because it's a nice sort of pounding pulse music yeah. of the sound of a man escaping from a Turkish prison. Um, but it's great, you know, classic Italo disco stuff. But he loved Metropolis. He'd seen it when he was young. It had a huge influence on him. 
and he discovered that the film didn't really exist in any kind of restored form. It had been severely hacked about um, prior to its original release. The original cut was about two and a half hours. Hmm. After the premiere, it was cut down quite heavily. Uh, When it was released in the US, it was completely recut and had new uh, title cards added in. Oh, okay. To downplay the film's socialist <laughs> agenda, for some reason, for yeah, for whatever reason that might be, and that was the version that was in circulation for such a long time. Um, Moroder, in you know, the, the way that we see now with people like Peter Jackson restoring the Beatles' mm. "Get Back," used his wealth and pull in the art scene to authorize and fund a restored version of Metropolis. But he went further than that. Yes. He produced the version of Metropolis that he would have made given the available materials. So it has tinting, which the original version was not intended to have. Um, there was a full orchestral score written for the original to be performed alongside the silent film. Okay. Um, uh, Moroder ignored that, decided this, was a con- this would be a contemporary production it should have contemporary music. Mm. So he wrote or or co-wrote a bunch of songs to be performed by some of the biggest names in pop and rock of the day to be performed along, to be recorded and performed alongside the film. So all the songs are original. I feel it's worth pointing that out. All these songs were written for the film. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because obviously the the only one of them I'm really familiar with is the Freddie Mercury one. Love Love Kills. Love Love Kills, so yeah. Um, Um, I I think that all the songs in their own right are pretty good. Yes. I mean, I quite like that kind of electronic yeah. early 80s pop. But they're all fine mm. at worst. Some of them are great. One in particular really stands out. We'll get on to that. Yeah. Um, but he wanted to... He didn't want Metropolis to be seen as this old, creaky, silent movie thing. Yeah. He wanted it to be something fresh and vital and modern for a modern audience. Do you think that is a good idea? You're fighting against the source material. What? What? And, and this is perhaps a terrible example, but there you go. Um, there were a few years ago. There were attempts to recut Doctor Who stories into forty-five minute versions to match the pace of the more modern series, and it didn't work. Because what you were trying to do was chop down material that was recorded for four parts. So it was recorded at a more leisurely pace. It was recorded multi-camera. And then you were suddenly just effectively trying to chop lumps out of it to get it down to 45 minutes. That's kind of, in a weird sort of way, what the Moroder version reminds me of. Is you're trying, you're, 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 at times you're trying to fight against the basic nature of the source material. A difference, I would say, is that Moroder is using a, the, the material that's available. Yes, this is true. There is, he's not really cutting anything. No. The material has been cut, and as far as he knows, it's been lost. Yeah. Um, whereas, I, I agree, those um, um, contracted um, Doctor Who episodes are terrible. They're just very odd, aren't they? Um, I mean, the, they did something similar in the 70s when they would recut stories down to feature length mm. for Christmas re- Christmas repeats and th- those are variable some yeah. of them work better than others I think with some of them some of the changes 
Moroder makes actually make more sense. When you look at the running times, it's as you said, the the running time of the first version was something ludicrous. It's over two hours. Two and a half hours, yeah. yeah. That's 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 too long for it. Um, cut it down. Um, but Moroder's version is 88 minutes. Yeah. And some of that is actually just because he's taken out all the kind of the interstitial caption cards. So, and what he's done is he's overlaid the captions on the footage itself. Yeah, he's he's just put them in as subtitles. And that works. That's perfect. That's a really re- uh, that's a really good idea. It preser- it it preserves the energy yes. of the of the performances and of the scenes. Yeah. In a way that you couldn't do in the silent movie days. I mean, no. you probably could have, but it would have been I don't know if anyone I think, I think there are technical limitations there that would prevent it from really working. I don't know if anyone because that just wasn't how you did those kind of caption cards in the in the silent movie days, was it? The idea of overla- overlaying them on the pictures. They probably had weird ideas about confusing the audience or giving them too much information or something. But, you know, by, 19, by the space year 1984, everybody's used to MTV and, you know, Def 2's just around the corner with its um, scrolling info bars and things. And the idea of actually reading something while looking at the screen at the same time is something that audiences are used to at that point. Yeah. I've seen the, f- well, not the full two and a half hour version, okay. but the most recent restoration, because about 10 years ago, I think, a single copy of Fritz Lang's director's cut was uncovered at a film archive in Buenos Aires. That's just astonishing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. 90 years later, it just turns up suddenly. And it was quite scratchy, mm. but it crucially, it provided a guide as to how to recut the existing material into the form that Lang wanted. Right. Because, yes, they, cool. because they weren't really sure of the, the construction of his director's cut. Okay. Yeah. That. So now they, they, they you know, the, the material that they had, they knew what order it was supposed to go in. Mm. And they could add in all this extra material, as say, was quite bad quality. Yeah. And there were two scenes that were beyond salvaging. Okay. Uh, and in the director's, in the, the most recent release, they're sort of covered by. Um, on-screen captions, right. ironically enough, um, but that's as as close as we can get to what Lang wanted. Yeah, that's the default version of the movie. Yeah, because that's what Lang wants to show the audience. Yes, and I don't think that anyone could reasonably argue Moroder's cut should be th- yeah, the main one. No, not anymore. I think. At the time, it was a perfectly reasonable. At the time, there was at, at the time it was the default because there wasn't yeah. anything else, and it was later superseded yeah. by a, another version, and now the and now this full length version. But I mean, another example I would state is um, Nicholas Winding reference Drive. Okay, because that has a great music soundtrack. Right, but there was an alternate version that was. Uh, edited that was basically the same film but with a different music score okay was this just done as a, like a temporary cut or was it a deliberate no it was it was a proper uh i don't know if it was commercially released but it was shown on tv hmm. it was shown on bbc3 and there were multiple audio options so that you could switch between the original soundtrack mix on broadcast on broadcast that's very clever i think it was with the red button you you could switch between the original mix and this new mix and all the dialogue and sound effects were still the same 
but it had this alternate music soundtrack. Wow. And I watched it with the alternate soundtrack, and it didn't really work mm. as well. But it didn't it didn't stick out as being wrong. I just thought, this isn't as effective as yeah. all the songs that Raffin chose. But it was an interesting yeah. try. And I thought, well, this is a perfectly reasonable experiment. Why not? Mm. I mean, if you can have the Pet Shop Boys do an alternate score for Battleship Potemkin and show that at, Lest- uh, at Trafalgar oh, Square... Yeah. Why not do it with Metropolis? Yeah, I years ago, um, and it wasn't really even a for it wasn't as formal as an alternate score, but I ended up in a bar where they were showing Freaks on the screen, and they just had a DJ in front that was just kind of mixing music to the pictures on the screen. Um, so yeah, no, absolutely. I kind of think with the silent films that sort of thing that the actual soundtrack is pretty much up for grabs because. Well, isn't it Fritz Lang that there's some quote from him saying that he sees everything in terms of visual images and he doesn't he doesn't have a kind of an audio sense. I'm sure I've seen I when I when I did my customary research reading Wikipedia this morning. Um and so, you know, Fritz Lang wouldn't have really necessarily I don't I'd like to think I can speak for Fritz Lang on this one. He wouldn't have necessarily been too bothered by the audio accompaniment, he would have been more concerned by how it looked and the the picture side of it. But because he was a he was a silent filmmaker, yeah. and I, th- I don't think he'd really conceived of the audio dimension to cinema. No, exactly. Until he actually started making sound films a couple of years yeah, later. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I I remember seeing the beginning of Metropolis. I think in a science class at school, and I can't remember what the context was. Other than maybe the teacher couldn't be bothered doing anything that day. <laughs> it was it one of those teachers got a hangover, so we're just going to watch a video. I don't, but lessons. it was, but it was a science lesson. Mm. The, I mean, the in, beginning. I mean, I could understand the transformation sequence, but the beginning seems odd. And I remember eventually seeing the whole thing on Channel Four. Mm. It was on late some Friday night or something like that. But the film does the, the Maroda cut, which is the only version we're going to talk about. It does start with a an on screen prologue, kind of explaining the background. Yes, saying, you know, has missing lots of bits, and we put it all yes, together. Yes. Da, 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 da. I should also point out as well, actually, that uh, the film started, and I think ten seconds in, I very nearly threw my TV set out of the window because the film starts with a caption, which uh, I'm vamping desperately while I call up the caption so I can read it. What could that caption possibly say, it Chris? It says... Please, 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 please enlighten us if you, if you feel so... Yes. It says, the year is 2026, a Dickensian best of times, worst of times, where total oppression and manipulation of the masses is wielded by the unquestionable, unquestionable power of the few. As I say... I nearly threw my TV set out of the window because that's way too on the nose for the way I feel about things at the moment. <laughs> I mean, four years out, but not a bad effort, because that's Maroda's caption as well, isn't it? Yeah. I, I don't think the film's ever given a date. I don't think... It... No, I mean, the, there was a, a novel adaptation, which I probably ought to have read. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, by, uh, oh, God, I've forgotten her name. Thea, the sp- Thea, Thea von Harbaugh. Yeah. Um, uh, Lang's collaborator and wife, yeah, oh. um, who yeah who wrote the script and mm. I was about to say there was a play there wasn't a play, um, but yeah there was talk of it being twenty twenty mm. or um, 
I think 2026. Or so. Oh, yeah, 2026. Yeah. It's 100 years after the film came out. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. Like Thunderbirds, which is also set 100 years in the future. <laughs> okay. Um, but we have we have the, the, the caption comes up in this beautiful mm. um, Art Deco style. And the film, the film is suffused with this Art Deco style. Yes. It is the 20s idea of what the future looks oh, like. It's beautiful, yeah. And it looks fantastic. So it hasn't dated because it's so fixed in that yeah. time. Um, and we have a montage of machinery at work and uh, just some some <laughs> some full-on on-screen captions just explaining what's yes. going on. Yeah, exactly. That this is the city of Metropolis, that people live in wealth and luxury and underneath the surface of the city all the machinery works that keeps everything going. That's tended to by the workers who live in a city deep in the bowels under, of the earth. Who live in a city under the machinery. There are no metaphors here. It's just... <laughs> no, it's just telling you. Yeah. Um, and uh, there, is the, there is a bit where, I think, I think it's right now, where there's a shift change. Yeah. And that, a detail I like, the workers have a 10-hour clock. Mm. Mechanization, decimalization. Yeah. And you see the, the this crowd of workers all shuffling in unison into the lift as the next wave come out and they go down in their lift and the um caption on screen scrolls down as well that's actually in the original director's cut i don't know i don't know if moroda copied that but um that was in the original idea that the the caption scrolls down with them it makes sense and again it's that i'd love i don't know anywhere near enough about silent films I don't know if they were pulling those kind of gags with the captions all the time but that in itself is such a terrific piece of visual storytelling it, it you know it, it's 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 a really really clever idea there's quite a lot of that I mean as I say I watched the, the full length version there's quite a lot of that in the full length mm. version the problem I think is that it's just a little bit too overindulgent right um, I'll get, we'll get into a few scenes yeah, yeah. that were I mean a lot of the, the missing material is just stuff that was trimmed down yeah okay um, as there's only I think one significant sequence I remember being different. Mm. Although I did watch this film about six months ago. <laughs> oh, well, okay. <laughs> I've been quite busy since the last series of Cinema Limbo, folks. Sorry. <laughs> um, but we go down into the into the the workers' city, and it's this gigantic cavern with Soviet-style mm. apartment buildings and huge lights. Uh, in the ceiling, the the ceiling of the cavern looks like the false ceiling from an office. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It's that's a kind of a slightly uncanny detail. Yeah, that even even where they live is it just looks like a workplace. This soulless, cold, miserable existence that they have. Meanwhile, in the Overcity, yes, um, there's a really great match shot. I think of young people capering about in a big stadium. Like I say, when, the first time I saw this, ironically, I watched it on a black and white TV, so I didn't pick up on the, the tenting. Mm. I don't have a problem with 90% of the the use of tents to kind of to change the mood and things, but there are a couple of occasions where its reach, reach exceeds its grasp, and this is one of them, because they've tried to tent the sky blue. And it just looks weird mm. because everything is a kind of slightly muddy shade of brown, and then you've got the sky up in the co- and it just it doesn't doesn't work. But the actual sort of combination shots, yeah, they're they're fantastically done. It 
Reminds me a little bit of the British film. Is it called Things to Come? Where there are whole special effects sequences there. There's like enormous rockets, which are obviously models. And there were people marching into the rockets. And I'm sitting there going... I know this must be some kind of special effects shot, but I can't work out how they've done it. (laughs) But among the the young men racing is Frida, who is going to be our hero. Yes. Uh, He is the son of uh, John Fridason, the master of Metropolis. Yeah. In the the American cut, he is called John Masterman. <laughs> Great. Okay. Fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Richard Richmond. Yes. Yeah. No. There's. I keep looking at a lot of the names because part, it all feels like it's drawn from mythology. There's a lot of stuff. The trouble is, I can't tell at times. Is it a myth? Is it a metaphor? There's a lot of different things. Or is it just as yeah? Is it just a grab bag of going? Oh, I like that. I like that. Because as you say, it's, what's he say, John Friedson? What does because it's a, uh, obviously a German film. Fried is that a particular word in German? Well, f- well Frieden in German means peace. Oh, so John. But Peace-Man. it's but it's but it's not. But that's within with an I. This right. is Friedersen. Um But his son would of course be called Freda Friedersen, which is Icelandic almost. Yeah. But then later on, you get references to a character to a, a lady called Hell. Now, she is a Norse god, I think. And I just can't work out. There's like there's a bit from here and a bit from... Well, the thing that made me think of was Helen of Troy. Yeah, well, that's true. Yes, of course. Yeah. And and we, we all get on to Rotvang. Mm, we, yes, yes. Who's, who's, who is the cruel evil wizard. His name means rosy-cheeked. Really? Rot, yeah, Rotvang okay. literally means red cheek. Wow, that's not the name I would. I wouldn't have expected it to mean that. Um, no, but no. It's it's yeah. This film is like that. I mean, we've got a character called Grot. Yeah, yes. Yeah. But that's the thing. Is I keep looking at these things and I keep I keep trying. To, I I, I worry that I'm kind of poking at it, looking for stuff that just sort of isn't there. Um, and yeah, I I think and, and I think yes. The first thing I was doing was looking at the characters' names, thinking, is there anything? But no, apparently there is no meaning to any of them. Um, apart from rosy-cheeked, obviously. I, th- I think it's as well trying to think of, well, what are names going to be like in the future? Yeah, there is. that's true. So Freda Fredersen sounds like what someone in the 20s might think someone's name mm. would be like in 100 years. Yes. You end up with, again, and I will stop talking about Doctor Who at some point in the next five years. Never! <laughs> but it's like Mavic Chen. You know, it's like all those... Oh, yeah. I can't remember some of the other characters from Dalek's Master Plan Accord. Isn't there somebody called... Um, uh, so those... Uh, Carlton, yeah, Roald, yes, because he was originally called Ronald, but that wasn't spacey enough, so <laughs> no, they called him Roald. Yeah, because the one person you imagine of being as an astronaut is Roald Dahl. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was there. He was a pilot, wasn't he? Mm. He went up into space in a great glass escalator. I remember reading a book about escalator. Es- yeah, apparently I'm just making up words now. The word escalate actually derives from escalator. Hmm. Um, Freda is maybe the most uh, puny and like fragile heroic character I've ever seen. Yes. Because Gustav Fröhlich 
Um, Gustav Froelich does an awful lot of silent movie acting, and obviously yeah. everyone's doing silent movie acting, but he's doing the the big playing to the back state, the, you know, the back of the stools, yeah. opera level there's a acting. F- there's a few points when I could actually have believed he was a dancer rather than... Oh, yeah. Just because of the way that he's kind of moving and... Uh, I appreciate that obviously acting was a kind of a different skill in those days, but it's much more dance. It's much more performative in a dance sense than in an acting sense at times. I think that's part of the whole expressionist influence mm. as well. That cinema was not a natural medium. Yeah. So having people, you know, wildly over exaggerate emotions, and there's there's, there's two physical gestures that will come up a lot in this movie and one is the back of the hand to the mouth mm. in horror and the other is fists clasped fists clenched backs of the hands together against the chest yeah yeah and there's another one and i don't really know how to describe it it's a kind of vague pleading gesture where people have got like one hand that both arms are extended but one hand one arm is kind of fully extended and the other one is is not so much yeah there's a few things that come up, and yeah, it's almost at times it's much more like looking at a ballet. Mm. But I forget where I saw it now, but I remember somebody describing silent films once as the last time that film was genuinely a director's medium because you could literally just stand by the side of the camera and go, Look up, now widen your eyes, now open your mouth. You, know, you could literally just talk the actors through the performance you wanted. And there are quite a few sequences where you can just imagine Fritz Lang standing by the camera telling people what he wants them to do. Yeah. Well, until the 70s, I suppose, it was still like that in Italy, where oh, yes, famously it- they would still record films without sound and just post-sync everything. It, up to the 70s? Okay. I've, at, well, at, wow. at, at least... Like, uh, I think almost all of Liep, Sergio Leone's films were made like that. Okay, I'm not, not familiar with them. In the, uh, like, um, yeah, uh, uh, Good, the Bad and the Ugly is 66, but Fistful of Dynamite, I think 73, is all post-dubbed. Because you've got like three or four main actors who speak English, right. who dub themselves. And all the other actors are Italian or Spanish, speaking their own language and dubbed by someone else. That, fair enough. Yeah, no, that's... Because that's just how they made movies. Yeah, I suppose that if everyone else is doing it, it doesn't seem odd, does it? Yeah. yeah. I don't think a single word of Clint Eastwood's dialogue spoken on set in any of the Man With No Name films is actually in the movie. It's all post-dubbed. By him, of course. Yeah, yeah. But um, they just didn't record with sound. Weird. Just easier not to. You can just do it all in the studio later on. I mean, it's it's like the the old idea of oh yeah, we can just fix impose. We can do it with CGI. I suppose that's true. Yeah, because if there's noise all over the place, yeah, and you're filming out God knows where, and like none of the actors speak each other's languages, yeah, you, well they know what to say. Just yeah. get them to, and the actors know how to react, and they know you know everyone knows what the dialogue's supposed to be. Just have them speak the dialogue in whatever language is convenient. Dub it later. Yeah. It just seems. I was about to say it seems like an incredibly cumbersome way to make films, but then, uh, among other things, you know, I've been branching out from Doctor Who. I've been listening to podcasts about Star Trek Voyager as well, <laughs> and apparently, a lot of the dialogue in that was post 
dubbed afterwards as well. Was it really? Yeah, just because as they walked down the corridors, you would hear like the kind of the footsteps clunking on the floor, and they they didn't feel that that matched the sort of the aesthetic of the future that they wanted. The the one where, that's where the space of isn't made out of wood. Exactly. Yes, and the one that sticks in my mind was apparently if you ever saw a big scene of lots and lots of people like in the kind of the the dining hall or the the bar or whatever it was and they're all talking animatedly they would all just be opening and closing their mouths and not making any noise yeah that's a standard thing it just seems such a weird way it's it's like all the jokes about sort of you know painting cows look like horses and things Mm. you know it's just it's just that thing of of you realize that yeah all the stuff doesn't get made the way you'd expect it to. Yeah, it's, I know it's a standard thing where any scene that's set in a restaurant where there's lots of people around, everyone is silent apart from the actual actors who have dialogue in the scene. Yeah. Everyone else is just miming dialogue. And no, no one can eat anything either <laughs> because that screws up with continuity. Yeah. Uh, I've seen outtakes from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where they occasionally film in, in restaurants. Yeah. And there's just dead silence behind them. Where there's like thirty people all miming conversations and eating, just peculiar. But then you watch the episode and think, "Oh yes, it's all you know, exactly. they get in an ADR group and it's all yeah. dubbed and it all seems perfectly natural." Yeah. Um, in the gardens of eternal pleasure. Yes. Um, the rich kids and uh, they are just they are just the worst, aren't they? These rich kids trust they literally trust fund babies. It's such an odd setup, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and as I say, it all just feels a little bit too on the nose for the, for way, now. Thi- the way things are going but, at the moment. But that, but at the time, I think if you were trying to be subtle or allegorical in films, it was a lot harder because people would just take what they were seeing at face value. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel there's a period of American history that's referred to as the Gilded Age, but the trouble is I can never remember when the Gilded Age was. I think it might have been more like late eight, late 1900s. Yeah, I think it's like the Belle Epoque and the naughty 90s. Yeah. But this is this is just about pre-Wall Street crash, isn't it? I don't think... Yeah, a couple of years and ahead. And so you are into that whole... Um, Roaring Twenties. Yeah, the Roaring Twenties, the... Um, Great Gatsby. Great Gatsby, that's what I was trying to think of, yeah people dancing on tables, all that sort it's of It's all thing. very Baz Luhrmann. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's all just, yeah, not, yeah. It, or one of my favourite lines from Frasier, where he's um, he's been asked to do a, a theme tune for his radio show. And initially it's like this like 10 second jingle, but it gets bigger and bigger and he's got this orchestra, he's got like the local men's choir. Oh. And someone says, you know, Frasier, you know, they, you know the saying that less is more, Right. And Frazier says, well, yes, but if less is more, imagine how much more more will be. <laughs> yeah, no, that's... Uh, and so it's that thing that, that there is this sense that, yes, in a in a couple of years, this is all going to come crashing down for the first time um, in the real world. Um, yeah. But yes, it's... I think what just from a boring production standpoint, the thing that made me laugh watching this as well is there's a couple of like startled looking peacocks and things yeah. that just react with absolute terror whenever anyone got and were rushing off. And it made me think about when we were talking about Doctor Doolittle, and apparently the worst thing about filming Doctor Doolittle was the stench the of the ache, set, the acres of shit from all the animals all over the set, yeah, and that the sets had to be built on a slant so that it was easier to sluice them down. Oh, God, the horror. 
See, they learned with a new one because they just had all these CGI animals mm. and then they forgot to make it any good. <laughs> one of the highest grossing films of 2020. <laughs> Seriously. How many wow. high grossing films do you think there were in 2020? No, not, not many, but yes, I'm just like that one. Yeah, okay. There were, um, I, so this is something I follow. Um, norm, in a normal year pre pandemic, there were some 30 something films that would make 200 million worldwide, mm. not counting China. And in 2020, there were five. Wow. And four of them were released in the first three months of the year. <laughs> yes. The other one was Tenet. Um, so in the garden, they're playing Kiss Chase, and there's all the, the women in their 20s, mm. uh, Art Nouveau outfits, and Freda's chasing them all about, and it's all very flirty. And but it's in a very chaste kind of... Yeah. yeah. It's a very very innocent. It's, yeah. yeah, it's the garden they're, of earthly delights, yeah. But they're, they're still behaving like children. Mm, yes. Because they've had no cause to grow up. Yeah. And then the doors open and a woman walks in surrounded by small children. And this is Maria from the Workers' City. And then the the romance theme comes in, which is a song called... <laughs> yeah. Just one second. No, no sorry. The other end of the Wikipedia page. We have all the technology here, folks. Here's My Heart by Pat Benatar. It was performed by Pat Benatar. Oh, okay. It's the song that closes as well, yeah. isn't it? Yes, and it's yeah. the recurring romance theme all yeah. the way through the film. But it's a, it's, it's a love theme, but it expands from being just about uh, Freda and Maria to being about the love for one's fellow man, I yeah. think, which I think is clever. Um, and she's this saintly figure in a, in a, in a white dress, and she says to these all these urchins around her with their sooty faces, mm. oh, these are our brothers and sisters. And everyone just stares and at them with horror. Completely baffled. Yeah. But Freda is captivated by yes. her immediately. And there's a and the the lyrics in the song at that moment said, What if my heart gave me away? Okay. And I thought Moroda's really thought this through. Yeah. <laughs> Some of it... This isn't, this isn't just slapped together. He's actually thought about when these things are coming in on screen. There's a couple of... There's a couple of the songs I'm, I'm not too keen on. Um, I don't... I, I, think it, I think at times the soundtrack is better when it's just music. But that may just be because I'm kind of there thinking, well, this is obviously the official way to watch silent film is just with a musical accompaniment. I thought sometimes some of the... Some of the songs with lyrics distracted from the pictures, I can't really come up with a good way to describe it. But the Pat Benatar one is, yes, yeah, this is definitely one of the better songs. Mm. Um, and then sort of discreet ushers turn up, don't they? Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a character who's sort of the master of ceremonies who's not in this version, he's in the extended version, right. who looks exactly like Professor Calculus. Yeah. Um, uh, arranges her to be sort of ushered away. Yeah, yeah. Go, you know, go back. Yeah, go back to your undercity. There's a group of like white jacketed men who kind of suddenly, and I can't tell at times if this is because I'm watching a slightly cut down version, but they just kind of appear, and they just yes, they 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 they, they usher the children out of there, and of course, it makes me want to try and understand how society and metropolis is structured because. You know, it's not just the rich elites living up above and the p- 
poor workers living down below. There's the middle class that seem to fit, and there's the people that do things for the, for the, for for the for the glorious elites. There's like the ushers, and as you say, the master of ceremonies. How do they? Where do they live? How do they fit into? They live on the ground level in yeah, Metropolis. I guess so. Yeah. So they they presumably they get to see the sun when they go to work. Mm. Because there's a bit and. and I'll, I, I probably shouldn't, I won't jump ahead too much because I don't want. But there's a bit when the master of Metropolis uh, fires his assistant. Is his assistant called Theodore? No, he's called Josephat. Josephat. Oh, of course he's called. Jo- you think I could remember Josephat? Yes. Um, and Josephat looks like it's the end of his world. Yeah. He's been fired. And he's about to. And it, he nearly shoots himself. Yeah. And it just again, it just makes. Me, what are these middle class people? It just I just find it fascinating. <laughs> the middle class, like the working uh, just, class, exists to serve the upper yeah. class. They just have nicer That's, homes. Yeah, but they're still just hanging on is the implication. Yeah. Because as far as uh, Josephat's concerned, his life is over the second he's fired. In the full-length version, there are scenes in Josephat's flat. Oh. And he has a, you know, a nice little flat in the city. Okay. And it's looks quite nice and comfortable. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, one of the songs on the soundtrack is called Cage of Freedom. Mm. <laughs> that, that's the whole thing. Like, the workers live in these horrible circumstances. They are completely dependent on the upper classes. Yeah. Josephat and his ilk live in nicer circumstances, have, you know, presumably better food, everything is yeah. nicer. They are still totally dependent. They're, They're still, still slaves. Yeah. Um. So it's Maria and the kids are taken away where well, they they're won't they're have... sort of shooed out. Yeah. But Freda follows and immediately is in the city of the machines because <laughs> the the connection between the over-city and the machine city, it's they have better transport links than the Docklands Light Railway yeah. because it's like one f- short flight of stairs and you're immediately in, yes. among the machines even though it's supposed to be in the bowels of the earth. And I think that's it's not really a function of the shortcut because it's exactly the same in the long version. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because that's the thing. Is some, there, there are occasions where I, I couldn't tell if it was just that footage was, was missing or whether it had, as you say, Moroder would kind of cut a bit too deeply at some points. But yeah, yeah I'd, <laughs> nice to know they've got better transports than between, uh, better transport links than between Leeds and Manchester, yeah. Well, clearly this, they've just opened the, the hell line. Yes, yes. Of course, high-speed rail links between the, uh, the over-city and the workers' city. Mm. That's why the lifts are so quick. That's the- <laughs> yeah. Well, sadly, yes, the one place that would have good transport links is from the workers' city to the workers' place of work, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but he's, he's wandering around, and they have all these giant machines, and it's very much a almost pre-industrial, well, not pre-industrial, but industrial revolution image of these these giant machines that you have to service and you're completely enslaved to them. And it's never explained what they do. No, and it's pre-mechanization. That's the, that, that's the, or pre-automation. Is yes, the absolutely. Word. That's what's so interesting about it is that obviously Fritz Lang is doing this big thing of going, look at these people, they are components in the machine in the same way that a cog is or that a light bulb is. And... <clears throat> Ironically, these are the first people that would lose their jobs, for want of a better word, the moment that they realise how to automate them. Yeah. 
Um, he sees a giant machine where there's people twiddling with knobs and things, and suddenly there's an explosion, and you this- see dummies being thrown across the set and it's and it's a giant set yes yeah, huge i think it might be a few people on like um those peter pan oh, uh, kirby, kirby wires. Wires. Yeah, yeah it might be there's definitely a few people that kind of go up and they come down quite gracefully but yeah no it's a it's true i have trouble with the dedication of the workers there's there's these people that are struggling but then again I suppose if you know that you're standing next to a machine that will kill you if your attention wanders for 30 seconds you would want to make sure that you kept getting everything right yeah Um, Freda has a vision of Mm. this machine being uh, the god Moloch it is Moloch I was watching I couldn't remember if it was Baal Baal or Moloch but yeah Uh, with people being frogs marched in and just pushed into the mouth of this hungry god there's a great it's one of those the 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 first bit's really interesting because he stands up and he looks and the machine has become moloch and because it's presented straight you're not sure you're almost not sure whether you're actually seeing something that's literally there or not Mm. Um, it's only at the end of it when you get like the kind of the ripple glass effect that goes past and you realise that and it transitions back and it's, a, and it's almost a shame that Fritz Lang put that bit in because it's almost more effective where it's like you're not quite sure what you're seeing it does tie in with my idea that Freda is also physically very weak and feeble and frail mm. and that like a you know a car backfiring will give him a seizure <laughs> yes yeah and you know later on where he you know he sees what he thinks is Maria in his father's office. He yes. he does the whole, uh, uh, oh, yeah. uh, you know, hands clasped against chest and collapses and and gets into a fever. Yes, just from the strength of that. Yeah, yeah, he's just overwhelmed. I don't know if he's just supposed to be one of these people, that very kind of Wagnerian hero that's like so passionate. Yeah, the, his the passions just overwhelm them constantly. Or you could read it that you know he's never actually had to do anything in his life. Well, there is. So that. it's not really surprising that the slightest shock should knock him for six. Yeah. yeah. Um. So the in- the injured are hauled away from the explosion, and and the machine and, just and keeps the machine running. just carries on. People go yeah. back to work, and Fredo is appalled. Yeah. Um. And he goes to his father, and we see his father. And he is the most stern man yes. who has ever lived. Stern, stern man. His yeah. expression does not change through the entire film. No, not even when he's supposed to be happy. No. Not even where he's horrified at the imminent death of his own son mm. does his expression change. And it's a great performance, yeah, actually, yeah. because it's someone who is a very serious man mm. who has to deal with all these things happening yeah. and cannot afford to it's like he is just as much a slave to the system as anyone else he cannot afford to care yeah i suppose or that's... everything would stop yeah no, no this is true um and it's a very it's a, it's it's a it's a different it's a it's a less physical performance than yeah it's much more contained yeah yeah so he's much more static and it's a more modern looking performance i think that's part of it i think that the actor whose name i think is alfred arbel yep that's right um he's giving i think much more of a 
like a modern theatre performance, like uh, like Brecht, mm. because I, it feels like he has a lot more close-ups. Yeah, because Froelich is doing his big performance with lots of arm waving and big expressions. You're he right. doesn't need a close-up. The close-up was still a relatively new innovation. Okay. Whereas yeah, yeah, Arbel is very still, quiet, mm. contained. And you can have a close-up on that face and you can read into that. Mm. And you're not told what he's feeling. You have to read it for yourself. Yeah. I think that makes it an interesting contrast. Yeah. But yes, so it's... Um, I forget the nature of the... Basically, the conversation is just, yes, why do you treat the worker so badly, Daddy? Um, um, yes. And... Um, he built the city. Uh, the hand, the hands that are in the depths. They're, yes. they're, yeah, they're the hands of the workers. I probably should have been clearer in my notes. There is a, definitely a little speech about the hands in the the hands in the depth, and there's something up in the the head in the head in the, head in the clouds. Head, quite possibly, yeah. Head, yeah, head facing towards the sun or something like that. But the foreman of the machine city. Mm. is visiting, and he is a huge burly man with a huge burly beard. Yes. Called Grot. Oh, he's Grot, is Yes. Um, and he has some plans of some sort mm. that he's found and is handing in, and they seem to be some kind of map that uh, neither he nor Fredersen can figure out. But um, uh, Fredersen's secretary... Josephat uh, doesn't know what they are either, yeah. so he gets sacked. He just gets yes. Why didn't you tell me about these? You're fired. Yeah, and yeah, and that's it. As I say, his he's just instantly crushed. Um, and Fredo is appalled. Yeah, and it's suggested that he and Josephat kind of know each other and are kind mm. of a bit of sort of friendly, but not friends. And he runs after Josephat, and he's. So he stumbles down the stairs and pulls out a gun and mm. holds it to his temple and Fred manages to grab him at the, just as yeah. he's about to pull the trigger and stops him. And at that moment, the music swells and then cuts. Mm. Again, the virtue of doing it this way where you can just make up your own score. The original score doesn't do that. The original score is not very good. Oh, okay, that's interesting. It's very repetitive and boring. I mean, there's a case for arguing that obviously Moroder's because as you say, you've got the love, the love theme, which rec- you've got a lot of themes that recur at different points. Yeah. So he's kind of echoing how the musical score would have worked, but it sounds like the original score is not. It's a very conventional, um, corn gold, John Will, not John Williamsy, but mm. it sounds like a big old-fashioned orchestral music score. Yeah. But it doesn't seem like there's enough of it. I mean, there is a full score, and the the version of the director's cut is just a new recording. But it's very repetitive. The, you know, the same things come up over and over again yeah. in a very dull, uninteresting way. And it's quite boring to listen to. Which seems... It, I mean, it, it backs up the idea that Lang wasn't thinking about no, the sound. He was true. thinking about the picture. Yeah. And it, it, maybe he would have just been happy with someone sitting at, a, you know, at the Joanna by a the side of the screen. Morgan, yeah. You know, tinkling out appropriate themes for each scene. I've never really, I, again, I'm showing, showing my ignorance here, but in the 20s, would they have had a, would they have been playing the theme off a gramophone or something? Or would they have had an orchestra? I think the idea is that for big um, screenings, they would have had an orchestra. Wow. 
Yeah. I mean, they do sense. that now. I mean, they but have showings just... with film showings with the score performed by a live orchestra yeah, of you know Christopher Nolan movies with Hans Zimmer's music. Yeah. It just seems because. I was about to say that you would assume that, that playing the music live would have made it a bit more dynamic, but of course you've still got to match to the images on the screen, so you're still kind of tied, in, you, you're limited in the freedom you've got. You're really just, you're playing an existing score yeah. while there is also something happening on a screen nearby. Yes. Um, so, I mean, it's it depends on the players, it depends on the conductor, mm. but you're still bound by the actual score. Yeah. And also you have to try and keep it synchronised, yes. presumably. Um, Fredersen oh hang on what have I written here (laughs) (laughs) oh Fredersen is sort of perturbed by uh, his son's behaviour and he asks his assistant Mm. his other assistant uh, to keep an eye on him and his other assistant is variously called either Slim or the Thin Man okay uh, in German Der Schmale yeah the thin one. You see, so it automatically sounds better when you say it in German. That's the thing. And he's he's. I mean, he's not particularly thinner than anyone else in the movie, no. but he does look creepy and menacing. He looks yes. like a murderer. Yeah. Um, well, Freda asks for Josephat's help, so he gives Josephat a purpose. Hmm. Um, uh, he goes to the door in the city. The door, door to the, the machine city and opens it and just steam billows out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and he finds a man working at a clock face where he has mm. to turn the hands on the clock face to match where the the lights are coming on. Yes. Which is one of the visuals that they nick for the uh, Radio Gaga. Video. Yeah. I think they get Freddie Mercury doing that. Um, and he's... A, exhausted and collapsing so Freda stands in for him and they manage to swap clothes while still carrying on with this there is a whole on the one hand if you turn your back on these machines for 30 seconds they will kill you because health and safety standards are diabolical but yes as you said at the same time they also have time apparently to change it's the magic of cinema I think it's one of those things you're not supposed to question Yeah. but of course the problem is that because it's such a prosaic thing as changing clothes everyone immediately questions it yeah. because everyone knows how long it takes you to get dressed in the morning <laughs> <laughs> and um, the the worker's name is he's only given a number 11811 okay. but in the full length version he's called Georgi um, and he's sent to Go you know, go back to the Overcity in my clothes. You'll be able to blend in. Don't worry, mm. and take this message to my friend Josephat of I'm I'm looking for this girl Maria. So he goes up to the Overcity and he takes a taxi, yeah. but then he is distracted by, by the night by the nightclub slash brothel of Yoshiwara, and he goes inside. And in this version of the movie, we never see him again. <laughs> no, he just he does just disappear, doesn't he? Presumably he dies of exhaustion or something. He does come back in the full-length version in, in other scenes. Isn't he... I must have misremembered then. It, I thought at the end of the Marauder version, they were about to... St- somebody's about to stab... Um, God, I'm failing to remember. The Thin Man. Oh, is it the thin it's man the thin that takes the knife? No, uh, I thought that was I thought that was one one eight one one coming back and sort of uh, uh, saving Frieda's life. The, th- it's the thing is that there's it's difficult to distinguish them because yeah, they were wearing uniforms. they're all wearing uniforms and it's easy to distinguish Freda because he's up waving his arms around and pulling faces all the time. 
but a lot of the other workers are the thing is that they deliberately all look yeah. alike which is kind of the point but it also means that when you're supposed to be able to tell them apart you can't yeah. Rot's the one with the beard yes no, no I, I, got, I, I, and it, it, he may, you may be right, he may not come back, but I'd invented a little twist on the story, which is at the end, the worker that saves uh, Frida from being stabbed is 118. I think you're right, actually. Um, I think it was just because... So he obviously got bored he, of the yeah, he, yeah, I, I mean, we... Just dancing. We do see what goes... Yeah, there's just dancing going on. I just, the way it's presented in the film, say, oh yeah, it's a nightclub. Mm. I mean, it's clearly a brothel. They yeah. just can't say it's yeah. a brothel. Um, and that part of the movie, there's there's no footage. I was going to say, is that one of the... Because the, there's supposed to be... I know that there's a, there was a... For a long time, there was a famous lost sequence. Is that that bit? I or? believe so, yeah. Um, but there are some stills, and they use sort of animated mm. versions of the stills to fill in that bit of the plot yeah. in the Moroder cut. And Joseph obviously doesn't hear anything because... No. Um, Georgi's um, getting all uh, tired out. Yes. Just dance, doing the Charleston. Yeah. Just <laughs> doing the Charleston on the head of a pin like glue grade. <laughs> yes, yeah. Meanwhile, in an old house built by a wizard, suddenly we're in a different kind of movie. <laughs> and this is where, uh, yeah. Um, meanwhile, in an old house built, built by a wizard is a technological marvel. Yeah. Yeah, um, and... This is the point where I decided that this wasn't a science fiction film. It's it's a fairy tale about the future. I think that's the thing. Is it? Uh, well, funny enough, the 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 wizard's house thing reminds me of. Um, I went to a uh, my school library used to have all the old bound editions of Punch, and I was fascinated by some of the cartoons from the twenty. I couldn't have explained it at the time because I was like eleven. But that kind of Art Deco style, uh, they would draw a lot of sort of full-page cartoons and all, and it would be done in that same kind of Art Deco style. And there was just... I don't think it even had any a caption or anything. It was just a cartoon of a cityscape with all these huge, tall buildings looming over this tiny cathedral. Oh. And it's one of these things that just always... And that's what that's what Vod Vang's house reminds me of is that punch cartoon I've seen uh, pictures of these holdouts of mm. people who refuse to sell their houses and have all these skyscrapers and huge complexes like yeah. uh, the house in Up yes or the house in Batteries Not Included yeah um, and it's very much one of those except it's not like you know an old fashioned building from the 20s it's a uh, it's a witch's house it's from a Baba brother's Yaga's grip house, in the middle yeah. of a 20th century, yeah. like early 20th century New York. Yeah. And the contrast is, this This could only happen before any of these tropes were codified. Mm. Yes, you, it, you literally, if you tried to, if you tried a visual like this now, you would just get laughed out of the, the cinema. I, don't, I think it would just look so strange. Yeah, yeah. Of this, this little fairy tale house. In the middle of yeah. a modern city, it's so weird. And inside is Rodvang, uh, who is obsessed with his lost love, Hell. Yeah, I don't know if it's oh, who. Yeah, who left him for, for Fredersen and was yes. Freda's mother, yes. but who died in childbirth. Yeah, and he has a, a dwarf servant who appears in one shot, <laughs> mm. and a metal hand. And, a, and a, well, he no, he wears a black glove oh, on okay. one hand. No explanation. 
but that was the inspiration for Doctor Strangelove. Oh, okay. Huh. And I, maybe by extension, um, Luke Skywalker. In a way, in a way, well, George Lucas does like borrowing from Metropolis, doesn't he? I, yeah. I just quickly looked up to see whether when we said that that worker's name was one one three one one eight one one, he thought it yes, was one one eight one one three eight. Exactly. Yeah. I believe that THX one one three eight was the number plate on George Lucas's car. Yeah, that's where he got it from. Yeah, yeah in the same you, way that Indiana was the name of his dog. Yeah. Sometimes you can read too much into these things. Um. Rotwang, played by Rudolf Kleinroger, is another actor doing the proper operatic. Yeah, he's really vis- visible from the next street performance. Yeah, but he's an insane wizard. It's yes. totally merited. Yeah, um, there's a terrific bit. A bit again, a bit late. So I'll stop jumping forwards. But when John. It's not, not Fre- mis- John Frederson. It is John, is it? I keep pronouncing. No, it's, no, it's you're wrong. So no, we're both wrong. It's Jewel. There's no John. N. Yeah, Jewel Frederson. Where Joel goes to see Rotwang, and Rotwang's telling him about his amazing robot that he's made, and she's so lifelike. And you do kind of expect Joel to sort of pat him on the head and ask him if he's had enough sleep recently. <laughs> I mean, it's it's that great contrast between mm. Klein Rogger's performance, which is all like re- reaching up with a clenched hand. Yeah. Oh, see, and Frederson's just standing there going. Mm. Yes, give, just giving very it. still. There is quite a bit of off-screen subtext as well because Thea von Harbaugh, co-wrote the script with Fritz Lang, was previously Rudolf Kleinroger's wife. Oh, and she left him for Fritz Lang. Okay, so <laughs> I wonder where he got the idea from for the film. Yeah, so run this one by. So the guy, the, gu- the guy playing the man mourning for. The wife that he lost to another man is actually mourning the wife that he lost to another man. Yeah, except the the wife that he lost is alive, is alive, and yeah. writing the script for him. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so that you know, explains why he looks so angry all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And he also played Doctor Mabuza in the oh, okay. uh, in the previous yeah. ones. Um, Fred, Joe Frederson's come to see him. And Rodfang says, yes, I've, I've recreated her and unveils his machine creature. Mm. I'm not going to call it a robot. No. Because the word robot had only just been coined mm. and wasn't really in circulation. And because Rotvang isn't a scientist in the way we'd understand it, he's an alchemist. He's it's a wizard. Like, his house is full of pentagrams. Did you spot yeah. that? Uh, yeah, it's more like al- it's al- it's, it's more like alchemy, or he's, it's a golem, isn't it? I was going to say it's more like a golem than a robot. Yeah. I, the the way it's called in the um, original text is a machine and mensch, machine person or machine oh. creature. So it's a machine creature rather than a robot. Yeah. And the costume, I mean. There are numerous characters in the film who are secretly played by Brigitte Helm, who played Maria. Supposedly, yeah. she not only does she also play the machine creature, she also plays the Grim Reaper later oh. on, apparently. Okay. Um, and a couple of other characters who are masked. I don't know if that's mm. true or if it's just a yeah. weird billing in the script. Um, but the costume for the machine creature was a nightmare. It was I made of imagine. wood. It wow. was really stiff and horrible to wear. It was constantly falling over and getting cuts and bruises. The mu- the front could, of the head could come off. Mm. There are pictures of her with the front of the head off so that she could drink. It, she couldn't properly eat in it. 
Mm. You had to set the whole thing off to go to the toilet. It was an absolute fucking nightmare. It looks brilliant. Though. It looks amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's all worthwhile. Yeah, that sequence where the machine the the machine man stands up is is astonishingly creepy. To the point where I actually couldn't decide at first whether it was actually a person in a costume or whether they had just kind of created a kind of mechanism that would just stand up. It it doesn't look human as it stands. I think the the unwieldiness of the costume <laughs> helps to yeah. restrict movement yeah. in a way that looks unnatural. But yet, I mean, it's like Lang just suddenly invents the uncanny valley. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and then it takes a few steps forwards, and it's just ear- it's eerie to watch. It's something that's nearly human and yeah. looks human, but it really isn't. Yeah, um, and yeah, and to go with the whole al- alchemical thing, Rotfang says that the only thing it's missing is a soul. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, Fredersen shows him the plans, and they uh, realize that it's it's a map. To a mm. cavern at the deepest level of the workers' city, to the catacombs. To the catacombs. Yeah. And so suddenly, there's a religious element. Oh, the, oh, there absolutely is and a religious yeah. element. But no, but it's that thing of just going. I'm having trouble keeping track of all the themes I think might be in here. Um, Fred is still working away. He's crucified against the, oh, the clock right. he's yes, working yeah. on. Oh, that's right. How long is this ten-hour shift? Father, will these ten hours never end? Which here you go me reading too much stuff into it he's crucified on the machine what is it that Christ calls out he calls out to his father yeah 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 I mean we do get into Freda being the messiah he is the feeblest messiah (laughs) I mean I I, I keep saying he has he has great heart and great spirit Mm. but I mean a stiff wind would blow him over yeah um but the horn sounds and there's a shift change and oh that's he's found He's found one of the plans, hasn't he? He's trying to read it while he's also trying to work the machine. Yeah. And then another worker comes up and says, oh, Maria's called another meeting in uh, in the catacombs tonight. Yeah. And yeah, and he... Um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? No, it's gone. Um, it can't have been anything worthwhile. Fredersen and Rotfang head there because mm. um, Rotfang's got stairs down to his cellar and then it's a staircase from his cellar down to the deepest level of the worker's yeah. city because everything's really close together. Because, <laughs> But also, again, as you say, because, of course, the wizard's cottage would have access to the catacombs because it's that kind of weird fairy tale. It's that dream logic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so they watch through a, you know, a hole in the gallery mm. while Fredo, with all the other workers, watches Maria and falls to his knees in front of her and... Yeah. And Maria preaches a sermon about the Tower of Babel. Yes. And notably, <laughs> it's a story about the Tower of Babel with a completely different moral to every other version I've yeah. heard. <laughs> and again, I don't know if I'm if it's cultural or if I'm missing something here, but I mean, it makes sense. I mean, oh yes, she plays the arch- um, Brigitte Helm plays the architect of the Tower of Babel as well. She's got a big oh, fake I beard. Missed, missed that. You can't yeah. really tell because it's yeah. deliberately shot yeah. very soft. But she tells of how the, the thinkers and the designers hired workers, but the workers knew nothing of their plans. They only knew of you know, one stone to the next because that's all they were told. And the thinkers were so callous and secretive. And eventually there was a revolution. The whole thing was destroyed. And there's a line about 
Is it the dreams of the few became the cruelty of the many? Yeah. Or something. And, of course, I immediately thought of Jeremy Corbyn's line about um, for the many, not the few. Yeah, it makes me think of Elon Musk. Well, yeah, I try not to, but yeah. <laughs> mm. um, but um, Maria says the moral of this, <laughs> rather than the usual one about languages, yes. is that there has to be a mediator between the hands and the mind, and that must be the heart. Mm. And Freda has decided that that's probably him. Yes. And of course it is, because it's not going to be anyone else. No. Um, it's not going to be Rotvark. No. But oh, yes, so soon soon our mediator will come, and it's at this point that Freda is literally the Messiah. Yes. Because <laughs> he's yeah. the one who's going to come, and he's going to save everyone and bring peace to the world. Mm. It's. I mean, he is a Messiah from this point on. Yeah, I suppose he is, isn't he? Yes. As you say, just a slightly scrawny one. Yeah. That's what I like about it, that he is physically so feeble, but he's got this energy and this passion. Yeah, passion, passion is the and, word. And Again, he suddenly, he, his, his conscience is awoken, and he cares so much mm. to, about you know, doing the right thing, about helping people. I think that's, that's a, a positive message, that y- you don't have to be this great mm. heroic figure. You just have to really want to help. Yeah. That's enough. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, Fredersen says, can you make the machine creature like Maria? He's already, as they leave Rotvang's workshop, but, um, Rotvang goes, it only needs one more thing, it needs a soul. And um, Joe says, it's, I, so he says something like, it's a good job it does, I, I think it's better without one, or it's a good job it doesn't have one. I forget exactly mm. what the caption says now. And then two minutes later, he's like, you can use your machine to impersonate her. Um, and it's the ruthless decision maker. It's like the yes, it'll be bad if the machine if the machine thing gets a soul, but let's get rid of this agitator. Nothing's going to come. Nothing good's going to come from giving the workers better conditions. Yeah. Um, it's one less ba- ivory back scratcher for me. Yeah. Mm. Um, Freda remains behind in the sanctum. And Maria recognizes her, him, mm. and they kiss. And then we have the second uh, iteration of yes. "Here's my heart come in." Um, and they're going to meet in the the cathedral, the cathedral. in the Overcity, whilst Rotvang pursues her. This, is, which is a fantastic scene. It's that whole thing with the spotlight that's chasing her around is beautiful. We don't done. see Rotvang chasing her; we just see this spotlight. And it pins her in place. That's the, the thing I like is that when the light hits her, it's almost as if you you, you kind of the phys- again the physicality of the performance is that you can't quite tell if you're supposed to believe that when she's running along the beam of light, it's almost as if she's being pushed against walls by the light. Yeah, it's lovely. Mm. Freda waits in the cathedral, and there's no one coming. Mm. But there is a. Um, Oh, the seven deadly sins. Yes, I'm trying to think uh, of the word for it. I want to use not, the word triptych, but that's only three. Not a, like, a, yeah. like a diorama, but, yeah. but big. Of the seven deadly sins, and in the middle, death. Yes. Um, so Maria is being held captive, and she's in the shadows. It's all very expressionist. Mm. And Freda goes to... Uh, he goes to Rotfang's house. Oh, yeah, yeah, he hears her calls for help, 
as he's, yes. he's sort of wandering around looking for her. Because again, it's a it's a fairy tale, so everyone's in the right. But you know, it's it's metropolis. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, everyone's immediately in the right bit of the city they need to be in. He hears her um, calls of help as he's as he's passing Rutvang's house. He goes inside, but he finds himself trapped by all these doors that close yeah, behind him and then yeah. lock, which is a very sort of modern fairy tale automatic doors that don't let yeah, you out yeah. and things like that. Um, and he gets trapped in the cellar. Where he finds her scarf or yeah. cardigan or something. Whilst Maria is taken up and connected to the machine creature. And in a very Frankenstein mm. sequence, we have the, the famous but transformation. This, am I right to thinking this predates Frankenstein? Because isn't Frankenstein 30s? It predates... The, the, universal. The, the universal Boris Karloff yeah. Frankenstein by three or four years. Okay. But there was a previous version of Frankenstein oh, wow. uh, made by Thomas Edison, and I think 1915. Really? 1915. Wow. Um, and I've seen a picture of the Frankenstein creature from that, and it just looks like an ugly man. <laughs> well, Edison wouldn't want to spend any money on that. Um, if you've, have you read the book? Mm, no. But In the book... Shelley goes out of her way not to explain how he did it. That's the kind no. of the gag. Yeah. It's the gag in Young Frankenstein is that Frederick Frankenstein finds a book that says how I did oh, it. Oh, gotcha. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Because every version has just made it up. Mm. And I think in the Edison version, he's like congealed out of a pot or I was something. Say, the one thing that the Edison version wouldn't do is have the creature brought to to life by electricity because Edison wouldn't want anyone associating bad things with electricity. Yeah, well, well, it depends whether unless it was DC. It depends whether it's DC, of course. Um, yeah, that poor elephant. Yeah, well, I, I know a wonderful song about that from Bob's Burgers. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's like boiled in like boils them in a pot or something, wow. and it's like a, like a recipe. Yeah. Like bake for forty minutes and then climb out of the oven. Yeah. Um, so we have these, you know, these hoops of energy, and I think the effect still looks great with these hoops of energy going up and down it the creature. Astonishing. I, I I looked at it and and was sitting there going, I assume this is animation, but I can't. Again, I can't work out how they've done. It's it's either animation or or just simple compositing. It's I don't think it's. I don't There's think a, it was difficult. I think it just required a bit of creativity. Yeah. In how could we do this? It's just that there's a point where everything is. I, I, I struggle. The, the, as you say, the the, the hoops, the, the hoops of electricity as they go up and down. They kind of reveal themselves at the points where you would, exp- you know, they're, they're blocked when the hoops pass behind Maria, but they they sort of show themselves properly in perspective. It's yeah, it's just technically, it's really well done. It could just be something, as you say, that's been carefully animated. Mm. There's a scene in It's a Wonderful Life where um, I think it's um, quite late on when he's made his wish and he's in the version of the town where he never existed. And he's sitting in the bar and he's listening to someone speak or uh, James Stewart's character is coming to some realisation. And it was just shot flat and when he came to watch it later watch the dailies frank capra thought this is wrong this needed to be this needed to be a push-in or a zoom onto his face as he's realizing what's happened yeah but we just got this flat shot so what he did 
he optically printed a slight zoom in oh. for every frame. Yeah. So he artificially created a zoom into James Stewart's face, and you can't tell hmm. that it's fudged, even though you're actually yeah. losing resolution as you zoom in. And it was just for this one shot that you wouldn't otherwise notice. So you could put that level of work in. Yeah, this is true. And so this, the animation here, it lasts only two minutes. Yeah. It's the... I, uh, sorry, I, I, I dislike the word iconic because it's a bit overused these days. But it is it's, the iconic moment yeah. of the film. It's the first great moment in science fiction cinema. Mm. Think of a science fiction film before this. Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, there definitely one, were some. That uh, uh, what's it? Uh, a trip to the moon or whatever. Oh yeah. Well, maybe, well maybe that maybe that's the iconic one then, with where he's got the rocket stuck in his. It's stuck in his. Face, um, yes, yeah. I mean, I think the I think Woman in the Moon predates this as well. Okay. And that doesn't, I think, have any particularly mm. notable um, icono- iconographic moments, but it did invent the countdown. Okay. Um. Uh, so the, the the creature transforms and it transforms mm. into a duplicate of Maria, and then it opens its eyes. And I think this is a Maroda edition. It is, yeah, yeah, blue. It's this bl- these blue sparks, yeah, in the middle of her eyes, and it's it's creepy. And I think it's one of the moments where the color correct, the the color tinting works. Yeah, mm. and this is the point where you. <laughs> You really get to see what a great actress Brigitte Hilm is. Yes. Because Maria is a is a goody goody. Mm. And that's fine, but she's a bit straightforward. Mm. The machine creature as Maria is a total nightmare. Yes. And a completely different character in every way. And it's all done with posture and body language. It's a it's a fantastic it's a lo- fantastic piece of acting. She has these these, these this hunched over posture mm. and these jerky movements. But it's a much more sen- sexual performance. Sorry, mum. It's a much more it is, sexual. But you're you're performance. right. It is. I think there's the, the the makeup in her face has changed as mm. well, so it's much harder. And she I think she has. Like slight coal around her eyes, yeah, it's like, and lipstick, and, and a look of a, a very, very cruel look as well, yeah. Mm. And it's it's a totally different performance. You see, oh yeah, she's Maria is is she's just acting. That's not just like someone walking mm. into the set. It's a proper performance yeah. because the the creature is in it's an it's always a nightmare. Yeah, and there's never you're never confused by which one you're looking at. That's the no. that's the thing I like about it is you you always know it, you know it instantly it's like, oh I'm looking at I'm looking at robot Maria it's not robot not robot yes. creature uh, Maria creature Maria or Maria but you never get confused about which one is which no um, Freda manages to get away uh, the door opens and he escapes yeah um, and Rodvang takes Maria to see. Of the f- takes the machine yes. uh, to see Fredersen. And um, he says, oh, you can use her to control the workers. And uh, the machine Maria winks. Yes. And it's, God, that's so off-putting. And, yes. and uh, the way it's, as you say, it's it's very sexual, yeah. but it's, it's of, it's inhuman. It's destructive. It is actually destructive. There's a sense that, that this thing just wants to destroy for the love of destroying. Yeah. Yeah. 
and Freda comes in and sees what's happening and just clutches his chest and collapses. Yeah, from, from, he's overwhelmed by his passions again. Um, yeah. So much so that he spends the next few scenes bedridden. <laughs> and, um, and, but, this is important, Fredersen is very worried about his son's health. Mm. Yeah, and this, this is the, true, this yeah. is the first time you see him display a positive feeling. Mm. He's genuinely worried. Rotvang presents um, the creature to guests at his uh, creepy little house, and everyone's wearing black tie. This is. I thought this was at um, Yoshiwara's. What Yoshiwara? Yeah, yeah. I got confused. I think there's definitely another sequence at Yoshiwara's. Um, because there's there's a there's a caption isn't there about how Joel isn't con- once Maria tested once creature Maria tested on people to see how realistic it is or some so yes so and again it leads into a very erotic sequence you know, this, this this burlesque act yeah I mean the the it's a very theatrical piece of light but the lighting on that point where she appears from the vat and her dress is lit from the front and then the lighting changes so she's lit from behind and suddenly you can effectively see through her dress Mm. it's a very very charged moment it's only slightly undercut unfortunately by the fact that all the men in the crowd are doing that style of acting that was parodied to death by harry enfield so there's all (laughs) kinds of loads of raised eyebrows and curled lips and and, uh, uh, monocles popping out yes yeah but Freda also has a, a vision, because this is a fairy tale, he has a vision of what's going on. It's there. like he's seeing it at the same time. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. Uh, and there's a, there's a few shots with just just eyes. Yes. Just a screen full of eyes all staring at her, and it's the male gaze. And then there's a shot of her literally as the Whore of Babylon. She's riding a dragon. Yeah. And it's just, Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's it is showing perhaps a regressive attitude towards female sexuality, because Maria is all good and pure uh, yeah. and virginal. And, yes, where was and, the, unfe- and the creature the creature is unfettered and liberated and unashamedly sexual, and also and pure evil. That, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and then uh, Freda has a vision of the uh, the seven deadly sins, mm. and then. Uh, the Grim Reaper advancing on him with its scythe, yes. bring it to helm again. And I love the uh, the Marauder edition of the sound effect as yes, the scythe the swings down, noise, yeah. this electronic swish, and he faints dead away. And then a caption says, oh, yeah, he gets better. Yeah. <laughs> is that something that they expand on in the director's version, or is it just... No. <laughs> no. Fine. Yeah, he just gets it's, better. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he wasn't that ill. He's fine. Yeah. His passions subside. Um, Josephat arrives and explains oh Maria's been at Yoshua as you said mm. and uh, there's there's men fighting over her mm. at, to the death to the death and there's actually yeah, there's actual duels going on and this is where Love Kills comes in on the soundtrack yes it does doesn't because it because that yeah. fits perfectly yeah. um, and I've got a note here that uh, the machine creature in the Maria form is the embodiment of Rotvang's madness and fantasy about women. Yeah, possibly. I wonder whether Rotvang has put, for want of a better phrase, too much of himself into. There's also his obsession. He has a he has a, a bust of hell. 
mm. which we never get a proper look at in context, so we don't know how big it is. Mm. The, the way it was filmed, I got the impression it was like 500 feet high, it, it does, which is clearly not going to be the case. No, but you do get that sense that it's just mass. It's this very awkward conversation piece. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it's, it's, got, it's the fact that it's got the incredibly laboured description. It, it says something like, in memory of hell, in big letters. It says something like, loved by... Loved by, loved by Rotfang, stolen by Joel Frederson. And lost. Lost yeah. giving birth to his son. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, Rotfang, well, I see you've still got the... Uh, you still got the ornament, man. <laughs> How's uh, how is how is the therapy going now? Now that psychiatry's been invented, mm. <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's probably going really well. It probably used to be a really giant bust, and he's just getting smaller and smaller until he yes, can get over it. True. It'll be it'll be like the old Woody Allen joke. It'll be well, Freudianism's been invented now, so I should be cured within the next sixty years. <laughs> They'll just get smaller and smaller until he's like one he can put on the end of a pencil. Yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, his his attitude to women, mm. I think, has that he he might imagine perhaps that hell was this uh, this I'm going to say whore that he imagines her like that because she she went away and she went he went, yes. he went off and slept, bit, with other, slept with this other with this other man and yeah. betrayed him. Yeah. So now he's poured that into yeah, the and machine. She Maria. destroyed him, therefore all women are destroyers. Yeah, yeah. possibly. Yeah, yeah. And it's his madness and his destruction and his his hatred mm. that he's put in the machine creature. I find it very interesting how this film, that's nearly a hundred years old, stands up to this level of scrutiny. Yeah. A, a lot better than some films made now, but just <laughs> as well as other films we've yeah, covered yeah. in the podcast. There's a lot of complexity and thematic material and psychological material in this film that was made in 1926. Oh, yeah, yeah. When my yeah. grandmother was 10. Yes. I mean, that's the thing is, yes, we are four years off its 100th anniversary, which seems crazy, doesn't it? And uh, despite its age, it doesn't feel old. The time, I, when I watched it, the time flew by. I mean, well, it helps know, that it's not very long. That at 88 minutes, it's not the world's longest film, but it didn't ever feel like it was outstaying its welcome. No, it's, it's, I mean, even the long version is not sluggish, mm. but it's, it's a tight, focused story with yeah. a point and interesting and engaging characters and a strong story. Mm. Would you be surprised if I told you it had been turned into a stage musical? No, in fact, I think I remember it being on in London. With completely different songs. Oh, yeah, there you go. At least it wasn't one of the jukebox musicals. So they fitted all to the music of Kylie and Jason or something. Uh, they did get a big star to play... Well, they called him Masterman in this version again. Okay. Not necessarily known for musicals. No, okay. But definitely someone who had played the back row of the theatre. Brian Blessed? Got it in one. <laughs> I'm not sure. I would be fascinated to see a musical with Brian Blessed in, but from a distance. <laughs> from, from like the three-mile limit or something. Uh, Rotfang confesses to Maria, and this is a, a strangely intimate scene. Yeah, Maria is still his prisoner, and he talks to her almost like as an equal mm. and confesses that he's lost control of the machine creature completely, yeah. and he's terrified of what she's going to do next. And that well, that's your fault, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, mean. yeah, yeah. Um, sort out your own problem. So he wants Maria to stay with him because now yeah. he's transferred his 
yeah. idealized vision of women Maiden on women hood, onto yeah. the good virginal Maria. Maria goes down to the the workers' city and preaches their new gospel, and is, she's much more passionate and intense, yeah. and as you say, has that totally different body language. Again, I think before the phrase body language was coined. Yes, yeah, but there's that sense that there's a lovely moment where she looks over, she's talking to one side of the audience and they're all, again, they're all, they're mirroring her kind of body language, actually. They're all hunched over and they're all kind of ready to spring interaction. I think she, it's like she looks to the other side of the audience and realises that they're not reacting in the same way. So she then sort of gestures to them and they kind of, again, they all adopt the same, mm. the same, the same postures and things. And she, she really riles up the crowd. Yeah, destroy the machines. And this time, Freda and Josephat are watching through the, the little mm. hidey hole and they're absolutely horrified. Uh, noting that you know, Maria spoke of peace yes. and these people are talking about murder. Um, what, what I've written there. I mean, the problem is that this, by this point in the film, workers want to smash the machines. I'm not entirely sure that smashing the machines isn't such a bad idea, frankly. Except it's the, but it's, well, we find out why. Yes, exactly. But it's, yeah, yeah. the machines keep everything working. The machines mm. aren't necessarily the problem. No. The machines are just machines. They can't yes. think. Yeah. So the crowd starts heading off into the lift and leaving their kids behind in the workers' city because they're going they're gonna to go and fuck yes. everything up. And this, again, the shots, the shots of the crowds surging, and they look dangerous. Yeah. There's a real crush of a crowd, in the, in the, and, and it just looks astonishing. And the same thing a bit, a bit later with some of the city sequences, but we'll, we'll come, come, I've done too much jumping boards already, so we'll come to those later. Well, this film is hugely expensive. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, it, it was also a box office bomb. Really? Yeah. I'm kind of surprised. And it pretty much bankrupted Ufa, the film studio. Until I, th- I think it was uh, Hitler came along and started pouring money into it again, mm. because Ufa was yeah was Germany's big film studio, yeah. and um, yeah, people love movies. And what better method is there for dispensing propaganda? Top Gun Maverick, <laughs> little bit of politics. Yeah. Um, the news is coming through on um, Fredersen's ticker tape machine. Just, yes. I love that; it's a very modern touch. And um, he gets on the. The video phone, video phones as well. I think that was probably a, a new idea. That that might be the first ever appearance of a video phone. It makes perfect sense because how else are you gonna do that sequence? But yeah, it's just thinking about it. I, if anyone knows an example of that kind of thing before 1926, please let us know. Um, and the warning is that the city will be flooded, but it's the uh, yeah. workers' city. Yes. Um, Grot tries to stop the crowd single-handed, and and fair play to it. And it's you know he's not in itself a bad character, but and I don't know if this is a mistranslation of a line, but when he's speaking to the crowd, he says, "Where are was it? Where are your children? You'll flood your city, not our children, our city. It's all yours." Well, the- and it's just I just find it interesting that he's not speaking for himself at that point he's uh, he's appealing to them i can yeah. i mean the, the the words would be unsere and eure um so i don't think it's a an error in the translation i think yeah. it's a deliberate choice okay 
but he's appealing to their conscience. Where are your children? Yeah. Maybe Grot doesn't have children. Well, this is true, yes, possibly. And he's not... Not with that beard. No, well, no. Um, gives you something to hang on to. Um, the film's um, socialist agenda, mm. I, it doesn't quite reach the level of collectivism. No. Where our children is... Every, you know, our yeah. children collectively ours. Yeah. It doesn't... It's not quite at that point yeah um and he try and he's mounts a, he, he, he puts a, up you know, he puts up a fight yeah. Grot, and you know, people start rushing him and he fights off like 10 people single handedly yes. <laughs> um uh, the machine creature goes to the over city and while well, maria escapes and the worker city starts to flood and mm. There are explosions and lifts start collapsing. That, which is again is a, that sequence with Maria being down because Maria's come back down into the worker city at this point. Because yeah. there's a lovely caption that just says, "Oh, by the way, Maria escaped." Um, I th- yeah, I think is there that, is a scene of that which makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, by this point, Rotvang has you know just brain collapse. I mean, there's there's a great phrase. Um, <laughs> Rotvang macht winke winke. <laughs> what does that mean? He's, he's already waved goodbye. Okay, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. He's he's definitely beyond the sanity event horizon at that point, isn't he? And um, but anyway, Marie's. But yes, that shot of her in the city, and I'd, Marie, yes, obviously a bit of a goodie. She's perfectly matched for um, Friedersen actually, because you know she jumps at every single little thing. But that shot of her as the lifts crash down and she just looks more and more terrified as the city falls apart around her is, is lovely. Mm. Um, and water starts to bubble up through the, mm. the ground. And it looks like blood. In that very, very first moment when it comes up, it's black and it looks like blood, mm. which I, I, I like. It's not intentional, but I, I still like it. But there's, at the middle of the, like the square in the worker city, there's a gong. I assume it's shift change. Oh, but they have hooters, though, don't they? But I think it's all part of the same thing. Oh, okay. I think everything in their life is just about shift change. You go out to work, you come back from work. So I think that's why it's there. Well, Maria strikes the gong to summon all the children. And it makes such a shrimpy little noise. That's the only thing in this film that really bugged me, is that it's just like somebody pressing a key on a <laughs> piano key. And it's like, and it should be like a, it should be this real earth-shattering noise. It's just dung, dung, mm. dung. And that's it. That's the one thing about the Marauder version that really bothered me. Freda and Joseph climb up from the catacombs and they're reunited with Maria. And again, the bits with the kids as they crowd around. There's a, a, a there's this sense of a crush. And again, it just it's kids in water. Yeah, it looks quite dangerous. I mean, as we're talking about all the things that you know were being invented for the first time. Health and safety, Basic were, health and, and safety. <laughs> ironically, I think trade unions were yeah. probably still some way away. Mm. Um, but uh, Josephette leads them up to the, the stairs where they can get out, and Maria and Freda are the last out of the city, having, you know, getting other children away. Meanwhile, Fredersen is in his office with night having fallen, and the lights go and the, the lights are starting did. to go out across the yeah. city. And I wrote here in my notes, Munich. <laughs> And okay. I was looking at this this morning as I was going through my notes thinking, what on earth am I talking about? And then I remembered, when I first lived in Munich, when I was six years old, for a short time we lived in a high-rise apartment building right in the mm. middle of the city. 
and you could see the skyline so perfectly with all the neon lights and we were part of the skyline we're something mm. like the seventh floor of this building munich is not a particularly high-rise city in the middle and it reminded me of that of this view flat across the middle of a city with all the lights ahead of you Yes, sorry, when, when you were talking about Munich, for a second though, I thought you were going to say that you had been in the middle of a big power cut or something. But uh. I do remember a power cut when we were living there, but we'd moved to a, uh, a terraced house in the suburbs, okay. and the uh, transformer at the end of our road blew up. That sounds quite exciting. It was. I was at work one day, and it was... It must have been a... God, it must be pushing like 20 odd years ago now. There was a big power cut across the centre of London. And I stood there, and the lights went out, and all I could hear, because everyone was startled into silence as the lights went out, you, all you could hear was the sound of computer fans slowing down. And I had this real moment of thinking, this is what the end of the world is going to sound like. Oh, great. That's unnerving. Yes, yes. Well, yes, so he's in his office. He's in his office, and the lights are starting to go. Mm. And at this point, you see where his son gets it from, because Freelison collapses as well. <laughs> yes, um, he doesn't know where his son is, and um, he's told, I think it's the Thin Man, who we've barely seen in this version, mm. because he, almost all his scenes are cut. Right. Um, I mean, I think, I think I mentioned there's a scene where he goes to Josephat's flat and menaces him. Yes, yeah. Um, the Thin Man says, oh, he's, he's, he's down in the, in the depths of the workers' city. Um, but Fredo's actually managed to get to the workers and tell them mm. that their kids are safe. You know, we, we can meet you at the cathedral. You know, it will be fine. While there's a huge bonfire being built. Oh, there's. We've skipped it. There's a terrific bit. Uh, sorry, I've kind of. There's a lovely sequence when all the machines have been smashed and the workers are just dancing. Yeah. And they're almost doing that kind of Russian style of dancing where they've all got their hands on each other's shoulders and they're going around and they're dancing normal. around in a big circle. Yes, yeah. It's terrific. They're having a lovely day. Yeah. And now they get, and, and now they get to build a bonfire. And, um, because it's the witch. And they, they specifically use the word witch. Yeah, burning they? a witch. Yeah. Um, and Grot firstly tells well the that thing that triggers it off is Groot telling him well where where are your children yes of course you've destroyed yeah. yourselves mm. which makes me think the film is anti-revolutionary it kind of it's is it's pro-change yes but anti-revolutionary yeah yes the workers have had a brief go at Marxism and the end result is a dead city and potentially a load of uh, uh, trouble for their kids yeah. yeah so yeah burn the witch uh, while the machine creatures parting away at Yoshiwara's and yeah. you know, it's the having an end of the world bash over there and it pours out into the street and everyone's chasing after the machine creature and Fredo sends Josephat off to see his dad um, Grot grabs the fake Maria and, and, this, and throws her onto the pyre and this is the point where I thought that, that, that they were going to get some more mileage out of confusion between Maria and creature Maria but they're kind of beyond that in terms of the story. Yeah. Um, and th that's... The creature never looks distracted. It's delighted at the idea that it's had a go. It's destroyed the city, and now it's going to be destroyed itself. And it actually, it looks delighted at the concept. She never stops laughing. It's weird. It's really <laughs> weird, isn't it? Um, yeah, as... On the pyre, she turns back into the mm. 
the machine image again. Yeah. And Freda's being held back by the the workers, and they they will watch as the as Maria turns back to the machine creature, and they don't know what's going on. Mm. Meanwhile, Rodfang, now in a trance, yes, sleepwalks out of his own house. Again, is this covered a bit more fully in the director's? I think it, so. Yeah. Okay. Because he comes out and he's doing that classic sleepwalker's pose, isn't he, of arms straight out in front? And I had to check, and it's not him in the cabinet of Doctor Caligari. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's not him playing the sleepwalker, yeah. but it's not him playing Caligari either. Yeah. Um, Rotvang and Maria meet at the cathedral, and there's a chase up the stairs. Yes. Um, there's a bit where uh, Maria grabs onto the the, the rope hanging she from the bell and swings down, and the bell sounds, and you assume that this is the thing that's going to uh, you that is going to alert Frida to what's going, but no, it's not. It's just an exciting bit. It's just. I mean, it's it's a Brigitte Helm doing her own stunts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's the hero of this production. Mm. She's playing like six or seven characters or something. Yeah, wildly varying performances, doing her own stunts. Yeah. It's amazing, and she would rarely work again, and would never talk about her making of this film. Really, she didn't want to talk about it. That's a, that's a shame, in a way. Yeah, because it is that thing that she's such a big part of the film that you would I appreciate that her experience might have just been touted that it was six, 16 days of being crammed inside a wooden costume it was horrible mm. but it would be I would have liked to have heard her talking about it um, Joseph passes on the message um, Freda runs to the uh, the cath- oh, hang on to the cathedral. To the cathedral. Because Rotvang's gone full, um, I want to say full Hunchback of Notre Dame, but that's not not right, is it? Uh, he's Phantom, of, Phantom the, of the Opera? Phantom of the Opera, that's what I'm thinking. This, about. I think, is also the point where another film, I think, that borrows very heavily from this, Tim Burton's Batman. Mm, yes, yeah, the cathedral roof stuff. Because yeah. the whole chase up a cathedral fight at the top was pretty much improvised because while they were shooting that and they were shooting the going up the stairs of the spire, Jack Nicholson between takes apparently turned to Tim Burton and said, what are we doing? Where are we going? What's hap- what happens when we get to the top? Because they hadn't written that bit yet. Right. <laughs> so they had to write in a bit where he phones, well, phones, goes on the walkie-talkie and asks to be picked up by his helicopter because they didn't actually have a plan. They thought, oh yeah, going up a cathedral, that's exciting. Well, oh. well yes, and what happens then? <laughs> Like Rotvang has the excuse that he's insane. Yeah. So yeah, I'll go to the top and then I'll be closer to heaven. Yes, and yes. and question mark. Closer to hell. Closer to heaven and hell, ironically, yes. Well, he'll it, get closer to hell when he falls. Mm. Um, um yeah, Rotvang drags her up to the roof and um Grot passes on the message that Freda saved the children. Fredersen arrives at the cathedral. And he sees what's happening with all the, the, mm. the fighting up there. And he falls to his knees yeah. and clutches his hands against his head. Again, a still, completely yeah. still expression. And between shots, his hair goes grey. I didn't notice that at all. That's a lovely detail, though. Because uh, in, like the, in the last few scenes of the movie, he, he suddenly has grey hair and it changes. And it's, he's absolutely still from one shot to the next. Yeah. But his hair's gone grey. And I thought that was such a great... Yeah. That's... All his emotion has been sublimated. Yes. And it's now just bursting out wherever it can. Yeah. 
but they they fight and eventually um Rotfang tumbles off the roof and falls to his death. Yes. Um I've written here Rotfang as Joker. Yeah, well, but is, as you say, because the Joker, don't they tie a statue to his foot or something in Batman? He's, well, I was he, also thinking like Heath Ledger's Joker. Oh, uh, so he's just someone who loves carnage. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it could maybe Joaquin Phoenix's Joker as well. I haven't seen that film, and I don't want to. No. You know they're doing a sequel. Yes, it's cool. I, I forget what the Folly Adieu. That was it. Yes, it's yeah. better when Hot Shots did it. Hmm. Um. I didn't think of that joke, sorry. Um, but uh, Frida and Maria emerge from the cathedral safe. Um, Frida's and approaches, and and all the workers do as well. Mm. And they approach again. They're still walking in the same sort of formation that they do, because it's an arrowhead formation, because Grot's right at the front. Yeah. And when he moves away, there's the, the, you see the two people, then I think you can just about see sort of four people behind. I just like the fact that the workers are still sort of moving in formation, even when they don't realise that they're doing it. They've gone back into their yeah. their more servile, servile, but subservient yes, yeah. mode of thinking. Um, and Grot reaches out and offers his hand to Fredersen. But Fredersen's cautious. And this is where the last version of the song comes in, of mm. Here's My Heart. And I'm going to have to look up the lyrics. But Maria tells him, doesn't she? This is where Maria spells it out explicitly, that yes, you must be the heart between the hands and the head. Ooh. Sorry, I've just been... I've just found a picture of Maria having a drink on the set in the Machine Man costume. And yes, it looks like the worst thing in the world. And not trying to find the lyrics, annoyingly, they're all for a different mix of the song that don't have the verse that I'm talking about. Oh. Um, but it's, it's about not allowing yourself to, not allowing your emotions to be constrained, allowing yeah. yourself to feel that compassion, that yeah. that fellowship for another human being. And as you say... Um, Maria encourages Freda to, to be the mediator between the hands yeah. and the head. So he reaches out and takes Grot's wrist and beckons him over and then encourages his father to come over yeah. and takes his wrist and brings them together and, and they clasp hands just as the, we fade out. Yeah. And then the, the song really kicks in to the, uh, the chorus and the end mm. credits. And it, watching this again... Um, in preparation, not before I sit down to make notes for it, I watched the film again because I hadn't seen it in such a long yeah. time. I actually cried at that last it's scene. A, it's because it's it, a really nice it's, sequence. It's so powerful yeah. and so honest and sincere because they hadn't invented irony yet. No, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. And they say, it's not, it's not meant to be a story of revolution. It's about people learning to value each other and to yeah. work together. That, yeah. And that... Grot is just as mistrustful of Fridison as, as vice versa because they've always been in opposition, but they can work together and they can create something so much better as equals, as uh, not as comrades, uh, as as brothers for want of a better. As, yes, these are your brothers and sisters. Mm. Um. 
Moroda's cut preserves the story and most of the characters yeah. from the director's cut. But the modernization avoids damaging what's most important about the film, I think. That it's this message of positivity, of compassion, of caring for your fellow man and working together for a better world. I think it's a mistake to let works be bogged down in the past. I think reinvigorating it, giving it this new modern Mm. style to keep it living and vital and to communicate it to a new audience at a time when it was particularly apposite, I think, in the early Mm. 80s, where we had the rise of right-wing politics again with Thatcher and Reagan and the oppression of the working classes. And, and, you know, this came out Mm. the year of the miners' strikes. Yes, yeah, it did, didn't it? It could not have been better timed. I think it was hugely relevant in 1927. It was hugely relevant in 1984. And as we've said, it's hugely Mm. relevant today in 2022. And I think keeping a a film like this fresh, uh, you could do another version now. It's funny, during the sequence with the evacuation from the Worker's City, uh, which I've just realised, that's the one point the soundtrack drops, the music drops away, and it's just the noise of rushing water, mm. um, which is is effective, because I think it had been going on like that for two or three minutes before I realised that there hadn't been any music suddenly. But I was kind of wondering, the logical next thing to do, although this might be a terrible idea, would be to read. Th- this is a film that you could potentially remake with a script. I was about to suggest this. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes, a remake is currently in development. Oh, really? As it's not got a script by Akiva Goldstein, has it? No, 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 oh, <laughs> no, no. Akiva Goldstein has to stay far away from things That's that are good. Yeah. That's why he's working on Star Trek. Um, it's no, it's being developed, I think, for television by Sam Esmail, okay. who was the creator and showrunner of Mister Robot. Right. And was previously working on a new iteration of Battlestar Galactica. I can see a version of this for, for cinema mm. being made now. I think you could combine uh, you know, Art Deco with sort of sixties futurism and and some modern day like Apple Store yeah, yeah. style futurism. Um, I would keep. I think some of the music from this version works so well. I think Here's My Heart is so powerful. Mm. I I don't think I. Could, I, I could manage without it. I think yeah. it, I think the film without that is missing something really important. But you could have a kind of hybrid score as well, yeah. um, and shoot it in an in an expressionist way and make it very stylized, yeah. like a you know a film from the twenties but with twenty first century technology. It could absolutely work now. It's as we said, it's a fairy tale. It's yeah, timeless. Yeah. Um. I even thought of casting. Okay, who who do you see in? Um, I as Freda, I would say like a, a, a tiny little bunny rabbit. <laughs> yes, but, but not or a startled kitten. <laughs> yeah. um, as Maria Anya Taylor Joy, because I think she's yeah. fantastic and, and fits perfectly. Um, Fredersen would I think have to be Mads Mikkelsen, and as Grot someone who is not known for as a dramatic actor but fits i think the the physical type perfectly and i think is a great actor seth rogan 
Okay, yeah, interesting. I mean, the job is you do. I'd want to cast Klaus Kalinski as Wotvang, but uh, uh, well, he's been dead for nearly I know, thirty-five exactly, years. Yeah, so yeah, maybe we can reverse um, reverse death. I, I, I really don't. Yeah, I really don't. <laughs> I don't want Klaus Kalinski to be in any more films with any young women. Actually, no, that's true. He's got a bit. Of, he's got a. He's got a lousy reputation these days, hasn't he? Deservedly so, by the sounds of it. I mean, he had a lousy reputation when he was alive, but. Right. Um, yeah, hearing about his abuse of his daughter, oh, okay. I think it put yeah, that on to another level completely. Um, but yeah, you'd need someone. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, there's no one like that. <laughs> you need, need someone like again. Brian Blessed could have done it, but Brian, Brian Blessed's getting like, getting on a bit these days. You just need somebody that's not afraid to go completely berserk with it. Well, did you see um, the new version of Macbeth? No. Because the actor, the female actor who plays the witches, it's a very stylized version of the witches. She plays all three, but it's really just one character. Or is it three? Okay. Um, a theatre performer, very physical, very um, almost like a contortionist as well as a performer. You need someone who's like a, mm. like a, a, a mime or a dancer. Yeah. There's um, Christopher Gable. Yeah, yeah. I'm so the, 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 I'm trying to think of the, 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 the. There was a stage play called Shockhead Peter, a while ago that was yeah Julian Julian Bleach Julian Bleach yeah perfect yeah. Well, that's that then. I mean, <laughs> right. I'll write off to um, whatever holding company owns what's left of Ufa, and <laughs> yes. we'll take it from there. Yeah, piece of cake. I mean, you can even write to them in German. They'll be pleased. Oh, they that. love that sort of thing. Yeah. Thanks to Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, with over 100 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, when two worlds meet in strange surprise, with feelings cloaked in thin disguise, but if you let the heart run free, there's nothing left to come between. Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.